good to be with you guys this morning. You got to be in worship with some of my friends from San Jose. Awesome to have them. Luke and Joyce, so glad to have you guys. Now, if you haven't met me, my name's Tony. I have the privilege of being on staff here. It's super fun. Love being able to be a part of this ministry and staff and team here. Now, if you're a kid and you want to hang out with some other kids, ah, Miss Trish over there, Keziah, Alicia. So feel free to send your kids with them. They will have an awesome time. Uh, and uh, they'll come back in the second set of worship. So you can be ready when they come back. Now, if you're stuck here with me, uh, we've been going through the Old Testament. So we've been going through the book of Genesis. Uh, now we're in Exodus. Now, last week, Aaron talked about this really important moment in the book of Exodus where this burning bush that isn't consumed ends up sort of talking to Moses and calls him. It's this big, big moment in the book of Exodus and he says to Moses, hey, Moses, time to go back to Egypt. And Moses, right after chatting with God at this burning bush, the author tells us in Exodus 4.18 that Moses went back to Jethro, to his father-in-law, and said to him, please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, what I find really fascinating about this story is Moses receives a call from God. And then knowing, right, he needs to probably check in with Jethro. He's been living in Midian. He wants to explain why he's leaving. But the reason he gives to Jethro isn't the reason God gave him. You notice that? Hey, I just want to check in and see if these people are alive. Not, God has called me to deliver the Hebrew people from oppression and slavery. Now, I wonder... You know, Moses is just a little reluctant at this point. Like, what is he supposed to say? So Jethro, just to let you know, I was walking with the sheep again today, and God, big G, creator of the whole universe, talked to me in a burning bush and said, oh, you're going to now go confront the most powerful person in the world who's in charge of the most powerful empire in the world and says, yeah, I'm going to go actually deliver all these people. Uh, so see you in a couple weeks. Like, what do you say? So he says, hey, Jethro, you know, I'm just going to make sure these people I know are alive. You get family. You get people. Yeah, of course he's going to be like, of course. But a Moses, right, he kind of avoids, even at this very first step, just an honest conversation with his, his in-laws. But he, he does leave, right? The text tells us that Moses makes his way to Egypt. And God, at the same time, tells Aaron, who's his brother, to meet him. Now, we read that and we think, okay, cool. But let's like anchor ourselves a little bit into geography. So there's a map. Uh, and so Midian is between 300, 400 miles between where Pharaoh and Aaron are. And it's through some pretty wild country. So now imagine you're walking through the wildest country you've ever been in. You've been going for, let's say, eight or nine days. You have seen no people. And you turn around a bend and you're like, huh. My brother's here too. Right? Aaron meets him in the wilderness. That's pretty awesome. Imagine Moses is like, 
super excited. Remember his, like, one of his first worries at the burning bush? I can't speak. I need someone to speak for me. Okay, I'll let your brother go. But he doesn't know how he's going to make this connection, right? God makes this connection in the wilderness. They're excited. Now, him and his brother then arrive, right, back into that green part of that map, which is sort of where uh, Pharaoh would be, where the Hebrew people would be. They arrive there. And now Moses has someone to speak for him, and they go to the Hebrew people, and this is Exodus 4 through the 1. And Moses shares everything, right? And it says this, the people, right, the Hebrew people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their reflection, right, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Everyone is excited. God is on the move. I mean, think about it. Generations of people have been waiting for this moment. It's not like they've been like, "Ah, it's kind of a long weekend. Right? This is a long, long time of oppression. I imagine, as I was sort of sitting in this, imagine the parties that night. Imagine the tears of joy. When I think of this story, it sort of brings me back to when we started this replant, this church plant a few years ago. And all these people that were a part of this body that had been praying. And I remember when we first started, people literally that had been praying for years and years, literally in these pews, weeping as they saw God bringing life back into this church. There was this one Sunday where I made this announcement asking if there were a couple able-bodied men who could move some stuff in the building. And I remember these two older women coming up to me after just crying. And I was like, oh no, you know. I really upset someone today. And they came up to me and said, do you know how many years it has been since we could ask someone to help us around the church? I also remember at that time, I was having my own process. Right? I was up in Washington. Our family was up there. And we thought, maybe God is calling us. And I'm like, me? What do I have to bring? I remember what we did is we circled together some of our best friends, people we trusted, and we just said, we think God might be inviting us to do this. And we said, we want you to ask any question. There's nothing off the table. Ask us questions because we want to discern together whether God might be calling us to do this. And if they had said, yeah, we don't think so, I think we would have submitted to that as God's communication through this community of people. Right, but they told us to come, and we were like, all right, here we go. We arrived on the ground, and we're excited. And I wonder if we felt just a tiny bit of the excitement that Moses felt that first day, coming back to Egypt. Right, we get into chapter 5. Moses is in Egypt, and now he's ready to call, carry out the task that God has specifically called him to do. And I think he's expecting this quick, cataclysmic end to Pharaoh's destructive reign. This isn't what happens. In fact, things get worse before they get better. Moses seems not only ineffective, but his actions actually appear counterproductive at this moment. The text says in Exodus 5-2, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, 
that me, he may, they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Imagine that for a second, right? They go in, they're like filled with the Holy Spirit or adrenaline or something, and they're like, boom, you know, expecting like everyone to fall on their faces and be like, yes, you know. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron, they walk into the splendor of this palace. They're thinking, here we go. This is the moment, right? It's going to happen all right now. Everyone's at home waiting for this moment. They're all praying. They're all interceding. Everyone is behind us. Pharaoh says, wait, who's the Lord? Now, just as a matter of basic diplomacy, Pharaoh knows every god in the Egyptian pantheon and of all their neighbors, right? You don't lead a country without knowing the basic core beliefs of the people you rule and that you interface with, right? This is not an innocent question. This is an obvious sign of disrespect. This is sarcasm. And it illustrates in their first conversation, Pharaoh's hardness of heart, which Aaron will speak about in detail next week. So now Moses and Aaron, sort of, maybe they're a little bit slow on the uptake. They're like, let's try again. Maybe I'll speak slower. My people, you know, however he does it. And Pharaoh now, he ends up flipping the conversation entirely. He actually ends up accusing Moses and Aaron of trying to get the Hebrew people out of work. Like, you guys are just being lazy. So instead of giving them a three-day trip in the wilderness to worship the Lord, he actually commands the taskmasters and their foremen not to give the Hebrew people straw to make bricks, but doesn't reduce the quota of bricks they need to make. So what this does is effectively double their work. I think Moses thought he would come in and he would make some commands and everything would change. Right? But Pharaoh, instead, he drives a wedge between Moses and the people and now things are way trickier. Moses now not only needs to negotiate the people's disbelief and the Egyptians' hostility, but because of Pharaoh's really clever political maneuver, he now needs to face internal conflict. Pharaoh also reframes in this moment the people, the Hebrew people's crying out. This is really important because the whole reason God started this is because the people, the Hebrew people in chapter 2 are crying out of their suffering, saying, God, we need your help. And he says, I hear you. I'm coming. Right? And then he calls Moses, brings him into this situation, and Pharaoh says, oh, those cries, they're not to God. Those are just lazy cries. You just want to neglect the work that is yours. And by belittling Israel's pain and suffering in this moment, Pharaoh directly now positions himself against God. Right? Who cares about his people? But on the mess on the ground, appreciate on the mess on the ground, like they can't see all this. That's a 10,000 foot view. And immediately after this, in, in verses 13 and 14, the Hebrew foremen who are responsible. Now, these are Hebrews. 
that are sort of enforcing, they're leading the Hebrew people to make this quota of bricks now, but without straw, they are actually beaten. So the leaders are beaten by the Egyptian slave drivers. And they think, okay, maybe there was a mishap in the chain of command. So what they do is they go back to Pharaoh. And they're like, hey, hey, Pharaoh, just checking in here. We just got beat up from trying to make bricks when we don't even get straw. Like, can you please put these people in their place? And he says to them, oh, you're just lazy too. So then the foreman, oh, and then Pharaoh says this to them, right? They go, they say, hey, what's going on? He says to them this. This is really important. He says, he says go work. I want to do a quick little aside because this, this little simple phrase we skip over in English, but it's really important. So on one level, he's telling them, just get back to work, people. Like, I don't have time for this. In Hebrew, though, the word for work is the same word for worship and serve. So when we were back in Exodus 4.23, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and you know, this first conversation back in Egypt, he says this line, let my son, God says, right, let my son Israel go that he may worship me. Worship is the same root as work. Let them work for me. And later in the Exodus narrative, when Pharaoh finally acquiesces and is like, fine, they can go into the wilderness, he says, go work. Worship or serve, same word, Yahweh. And what's really important here is what we're seeing is that one of the fundamental questions of the entire Exodus narrative is who will the Hebrew people worship, work for, and serve? The Hebrew foremen leave this meeting knowing, man, we have to go work for, serve Pharaoh. They've been beaten and belittled, and now they meet Moses. They come to Moses and they come to Aaron and they say this. Exodus 5.21 The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Earlier that day Moses met with the leaders and they say to him you are called by God. God has spoken to you to come and deliver us. They have a party. They're excited. The next day, everything changes. Moses sees his entire mission, calling, begin to evaporate before his eyes. He even asked God at the burning bush, but what if they don't listen to me? And I think in this moment, he says, going back to God, like, I told you, I told you they would not listen, yet you called me anyway. I knew this was going to happen. The truth is, it's always risky to listen to God's voice. It can be exciting. It can also be really vulnerable. I remember when we first came down to the church plant, we were so excited. You know, we were on the same page. The folks that were here were on the same page. We were going in a direction. 
I tried the best I could. There was this one person who arrived and wasn't quite on the same page. And I remember everything still felt so fragile at that point. It's like you could just push the church plant like a little bit and it would just be like, you know, it felt so fragile. And the truth is, I didn't feel all that competent. Like I felt like I'm doing the best I can with the information I have. And then this person who's no longer a part of this church came up to me and he's like, I just, you are really incompetent, Tony. You have no idea what you're doing. And then he ratcheted up a little bit. He's like, well, it's not just about your competence. It's also your character. Shame on you for being so arrogant that you think you could change this church. You are so arrogant. You should just let the people that are here lead this place. Take a back seat. And the truth is, like, I agreed with him on some level. I, I wasn't, like, on a competence level, like, yeah, I felt like I was making it up a lot of the time. And on a character level, who am I? Why should I be in that role and not someone else? Clearly, there's smarter and more faithful people in the world that could do this role. And at this moment, I, I felt like I had three options. Option one was get depressed and give up, right? Like, but the truth is, we had left everything behind. Like, I didn't have a fallback. So option one was kind of off the table. It's like, I want to be depressed and give up, but what the heck am I supposed to do? Option two was, get your act together, Trebek. Try harder. Push. And the truth is, is what almost all church planters do in this point. They push, and they try, and they drive themselves into the ground, and by year four, almost all of them are burnt out and hate coming to church. The truth is, I might have entertained option two if I knew what to do. But it wasn't clear to me. It was like, give me a lane to run in, I will run in it. But which lane do I pick? Option three is, you turn back to the one who called you. What am I supposed to do? My guess is Moses felt those three options. Depressed, run back to Midian. There's a family that loves me. Option two, work harder. Start up a diplomacy network. Build a nonprofit. Like, let's work on peacemaking. Or option three, turn back to the one who called him. Exodus 5, 22 and 23. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Tell me what you really think, Moses. Moses. 
just as Moses in chapter 2 is walking through the desert in this burning bush and he turns his attention and God speaks. So now, in the midst of conflict, he doesn't resort to just gossiping, finding those three or four people that are on his side and gossiping about all the unfaithful people. He doesn't just sort of find his two or three friends and then start backbiting and undermining the leadership. Like, eh, you know, who hasn't done that? Let's be honest. Instead, he turns back to God. And when he turns, he talks. And this conversation is brutal. Why have you done evil, God? You called me to do good. This is evil. God, you have not kept up your end. I have moved 400 miles, put myself in this incredibly vulnerable position. Where are you now? And in so doing, he keeps the conversation going. In fact, it is this key move that leads to Moses' deepening conviction of God's promise. The conviction that will guide him through the ten plagues during which Pharaoh will consistently refuse to cooperate. This turning back is the foundation of the resilience that Moses needs to make it through the Exodus narrative. It's in this conversation that God reinforces the promises, the things that he said at the burning bush. Moses, I am with you. Moses, it might, might feel like you're alone, but I am with you. Right? That he is, I am. And what Aaron talked about a few weeks ago, right? That's not just some cute little pithy statement that we put on baseball hats and t-shirts. Right? That is a promise that the God of the universe, his character, doesn't change. That when he makes a promise to you on the mountaintop, when you get into the valley, he will still be faithful. And he reminds Moses, I'm the God of the patriarchs, the one who called Abraham, and I keep my promise. Amen. Now there's other elements of this conversation, but at its core, God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm with you. I am dependable. I made a promise to Abraham, and I have every intention of keeping that promise. I know what's happening, Moses. I see it too, and I'm going to do something about it. Listen to my voice, Moses. Trust me. I remember um, after, right, that sort of character incompetence attack, I remember going back to God like, God, just let's be clear right now. You didn't make a mistake, right? Like, you did a full inventory. Like, you knew all my strengths and all of my weaknesses. You weren't like, oh, man, I thought Tony would do it different. And I remember this give and take, this conversation back with God that got me to this place where I realized, wow, God, if this fails, guess what? It's your fault. You called me. 
you didn't make a mistake. If this bombs, you get the blame. And if this thing grows, if God, you do something, you get all the glory. Right? Because he's the one who calls. He's the one who speaks. He's the one who gives us the resilience to endure. And the truth is, it was this relational back and forth that gave me, right, the resilience to keep going because the truth is, it wasn't and it isn't always this super smooth road. On Friday, I was just took some time to pray and I just realized, like, as I'm coming back, right, into this role, out of COVID shifting and our church is sort of together, I, I have this question in me of, like, God, can you do it again? Like, are, are you really going to be faithful? Because it felt like a miracle the first time. Like, is it possible this is going to happen again? And I remember thinking even in me, like, God, even if you are capable, am I? It's that moment when you go up a mountain and you get up and you're like, yes, like, awesome, I did it. I didn't even think I could make it this way. And you're looking back, like, of all the awesome things. And then you turn around and you see the trail going down and up another mountain and another mountain and another mountain. And you're just like, oh, can I do it? God knew Moses' weakness, and he called him anyway. He spoke to him, and he called him, and then he reassured him of who he was and his promise so that Moses could keep going back to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh would stand in his way through ten That's a story in the scriptures about who God is and Moses. And I think it actually has a lot to say to us. And there's lots of things to focus on. But the thing I want to talk about is the central piece of God speaking to Moses. It's because God speaks to Moses in the burning bush that Moses leaves Midian. It's not like, oh, I have a great idea. Let's go back to the most powerful person on earth, in the most powerful empire on earth, and say, hey, why don't you let all your slaves go that are actually increasing your profit today? It's not his idea, that's God's. And when everything starts to fall apart, it's God's speaking voice that provides sufficient assurance for Moses to keep going. I guess I just wondered today whether, as you come to church, as you read your Bible, as you consider your life with Jesus, does God speak to you? Do you ever hear his voice? And when times are tough, do you pick option B? Do you turn back to him? I recently spoke with someone who was like, you know, Tony, the truth is I'm pretty hesitant about this idea of hearing God's voice because I have watched people basically use this idea of God told me to do whatever they wanted in life. 
right? Someone says, oh, God told me to take a job here. God told me to move here. God told me to do X, Y, or Z. And then it's like, what are you supposed to say? Uh, maybe it wasn't God, you know? You're sort of put in this awkward position. I was talking with Aaron, uh, who's on staff, if you don't know him, and I was sort of going over this message, and I'm like, hey, what, what should I say? And Aaron's like, you know what? I, he's like, I read a recent Barna article. It talks about Gen Z and millennials, and he's a millennial, so he can say this. And he said, <laughs> and he said, you know, it's really interesting. Millennials basically and Gen Z spend like a 20 to 1 ratio online and on their phones versus the Bible. So what that means is something like this. For every hour that someone who is in Gen Z or a millennial, right, spends on their phone, on TikTok or Instagram, they spend three minutes on the Bi in the Bible. Now, my guess is, like, Aaron can say that. My guess is, like, something like this. Every generation isn't all that much different. But this has huge implications. Because this is the thing. God's speaking voice. God speaks to us in the context of the story of the scriptures. But when we're just living in the story of our culture, which essentially says, do what you want, if it feels good and aligns with you, what we're doing is we're inserting God's speaking voice into our cultural narrative that's basically like, God is going to tell me to do what I already want to do anyway. And when we shift the story, it changes everything. You see, the Bible isn't just simply an old book that gives us clues on how to live, right? Isn't a moral manual necessarily, or even just reveal truths about God. It does all those things, but it does so in an unfolding drama, a story that begins at creation. It continues through Abraham and his descendants into the Exodus and David's kingdom, and then exile. And it takes shape in the New Testament when God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus. Right? Jesus lives, dies, and is resurrected. The church is formed. And then we enter the drama. We are a part of that story until God comes again to make all things new. Our listening takes place in that drama and in that story. So we can't, we can't just not read the scriptures and think, oh, I'm just going to listen. The scriptures provide the context to our listening. On the other hand, some people say, oh, I'll just read the Bible. It won't lead me astray, and that's true, but this is the thing. When you actually read the Bible, the Bible never says, just read your Bible. The Bible repeatedly connects God's desire for relationship with his speaking. Right? In Genesis, we have seen how God speaks to Abraham, how he speaks to Noah, how he speaks to Adam and Eve. Right? As a part of an ongoing relational connection. As the Bible unfolds, right? he speaks to David, Solomon, the prophets, Jesus, John, Peter. And that's just barely scratching the surface. What we see in the Bible is that God speaks to his people as a part of his relational connection. Within the unfolding story of salvation history. Of which you and me are a part. Yet, in my experience, when I asked people to disciple me right, early on in my Jesus following, no one ever taught me how to listen. Even though it's this core thing in the biblical narrative, no one ever taught me. 
that having a relationship might involve a two-way conversation. Dallas Willard has this great quote in the book, Hearing God. He says this, being close to God means communicating with him, which is almost always a two-way street. In our ongoing friendship with God, we tell him what is on our hearts in prayer and learn to perceive what he is saying to us. It is the second part of our conversation with God that is found by many to be so difficult or even unapproachable. How can you be sure God's speaking to you? The answer is that we learn by experience. And in my experience, it wasn't a burning bush. It was this man named David Alvarez. I was about 24. I was in his Sunnyvale apartment on the second story. We were sitting on his couch. And he said, all right, Tony, this is how you do it. Just sort of be present. Be quiet. He said, God might speak to you through a scripture. We see that in the Bible all the time. God brings people into the scriptures in order to speak to them. He might speak to you through a picture. Right? We see that also in the scriptures. Or maybe a word or a phrase. But just be open. And I remember feeling super awkward and really pressured. And I think David picked up on this. And he's like, hey, Tony, just, just so you know, God decides when he speaks, not you. Like I thought, oh, I'm really spiritual if I hear God's voice. But if I don't, like something's wrong with me. And he's like, no, no, no. He's the creator of the universe. You're not. We open ourselves and listen to him for when he wants to speak to us. Our role is to be open. He also said to me, you know, because I had this question of like, why me? Why would God talk to me? I'm a, this 24-year-old in a, on a couch in Sunnyvale. There's a big world out there. Why me? I remember him saying something like, you know, it's actually equally arrogant to think that God will only speak to you or that he will never speak to you. Both are telling God how he is going to speak in the world. Just be present. See what God might do. The truth is, I don't remember what I heard or didn't hear that day, but what I do remember is that day pivot. It was a pivot in my life with God. I realize that God does speak. Not always, but often. And the thing is, my life became way more dynamic. Rather than prayer just being like telephone, you know, where someone says to you, you know, pray for my aunt. Okay, God, you know, pray for Susie's aunt. Like where I'm just sort of repeating what someone else told me. It became this dynamic two-way relationship. So every time I made space for God, I made space to listen. Not just to tell him what I wanted him to do. And every time I read the scriptures, I didn't read it like an encyclopedia where there's information I need to memorize or like a book that I needed to read for a class, right? Because I had to. I started reading the scriptures because I knew that God was going to speak to me. And he did. Now, can listening go wrong? Yes, absolutely. Let's just be honest about that. And I think there's actually three ways it primarily goes wrong. First, I think that listening often goes wrong when we don't approach it with humility. My friend David, who could hear God's voice as clear as anyone I've ever met, would often say when we were praying, he'd say something like, you know, Tony, 
this might be the burrito I had for lunch. I wonder if God might be saying to you. But it's this sort of awareness that like other things affect our listening. You know, when we come in and say, hey, thus saith the Lord, you know, over you. We approach often with a little bit more, I think, hubris than humility. Two, I think that listening often goes wrong when we do it as solitary individuals and not as a community. Now, I realize this might be really cross-cultural, but I want to sort of say something that might be a little provocative. In our community, I want to challenge all of you never to make a big decision in your life without inviting people to discern with you. We live in a declaration culture where what you do with your friends and people is you say, hey, guess what? I'm, I'm th- considering this new job. And then you sort of wait a second. They're like, I leave tomorrow. <laughs> this is what we do. We just tell people what we're doing. And often with the sort of addendum of, and God told me to. I think often we'd be much better served to say, I wonder if God might be inviting me to take this job. And then you take three or four friends and you say, hey, I want you to ask any question you have. Nothing's off limits. What, what concerns do you have for me? So that when we do this, and then people pray with us, and they listen with us, our blind spots, which, guess what? Full disclosure, every single one of us have. We are blind to all kinds of things. But when we get three or four people in a room, they actually balance out some of our blind spots. And then they say, oh, what about this? What about that? Then we all listen together. And then the hardest part of this is actually submitting to what the community that is discerning with you says. That maybe you're one voice in this community of discernment. You want to actually know you're hearing God's voice. Invite other people into the process. Three, it goes wrong when we emphasize our listening over the scripture's pronouncements. Right? God reveals himself in the scriptures. We get off course when we give ourselves permission to say, oh, oh, no, God told me. But there's thousands of years of church history. There's all these biblical passages that say, clearly, that's not, that, that's not okay. And we're like, no, no, but God said, you're going to go wrong, guaranteed. Now, full disclosure, are there gray parts? Absolutely. So awesome. Invite some friends to discern with you for those gray areas in Scripture where it's unclear. My guess is, and my experience is, that when we do these three things, 99% of the problems with listening go away. This is the thing in the midst of life, and the story of Moses sort of depicts this. When we listen and obey, it's vulnerable. And life is not always easy, right? when it gets hard, when God speaks to us, it is also one of the greatest sources of our resilience as followers that we bring to the table. 
having a conversational relationship with God makes it so in those moments of struggle and difficulty, our faith becomes less fragile. In fact, when can people continue to turn to God in the midst of all the difficulty, what I have watched time and time again is that their faith and their trust deepens. They hear God's voice and they begin to trust at deeper levels. Now, just as Moses continues to talk to God on day one in Egypt, right, because he turns back, keeps talking, he actually trusts more so that he can make it through the ten plagues in constant resistance by Pharaoh. So we, when we continue to talk to God in the midst of difficulty, God actually deepens our faith and trust. Now, just sort of uh, getting highly practical before we come back into worship, I, there's three tips I'd like to offer because I just think there's, like, how do, you, how do you respond to a message like this, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to listen. Now you're asking me to know how to listen to this message and respond to it. Like, what is God saying to me? First is this. The first tip I would offer is if you feel like or if you have no idea, if it feels like this is totally new, I would encourage you to try listening practice. So Kathy Pope has these groups. She's an elder in our church where she just tries to teach people to listen. Right? This is like David Alvarez with me on his couch in Sunnyvale. It's a space to learn. That's all it is. It's a space to be with a few other people and say, all right, God, how do I do this? I don't know what I'm doing. I would encourage you. We'll actually have a sign-up out there. If you're interested, sign up. If you're online, send an email. We would love to connect you. Number one. Number two, I want to say, if this feels incredibly hard, don't give up. Because the truth is, if you take a risk and you feel like God doesn't show up, it's brutal. But I want to say, if you keep turning back, Jesus will be faithful. He will speak. It might not be on your timetable. God is not a cosmic vending machine. But he will be faithful. And I think he will actually deepen your trust if you keep walking. Right? Don't pick options one and two. Depression or striving. They don't work. Let's listen. I just, though, I just want to say this. Remember, we cannot control God. Sometimes we want in these moments for God to give us a specific answer. Like, God, I need you to say this. But again, right, he's not a vending machine. There have been times in my life where I've wanted God to say, like, okay, God, this is my question. I need you to answer this question. And if you're not going to, I am going to pout and not talk to you for a year. And we laugh because we get it. The thing is, when I've looked back on those seasons in my life, what I realized is God was speaking. He just wasn't answering the question I was asking. Dallas Willard says this, he says, hearing God's directions is only one dimension 
of a rich and interactive relationship. Obtaining specific guidance is but one facet of hearing God. And especially in these seasons when life is tough, we need to be open to God answering other questions and speaking in other ways that we might not be specifically asking. You need help on this? I'm around. There are other people in this community that are around. We would love to walk with you and help because it can be tough. Third, I just want to say, if you have a big decision, include community. I can give you some very practical details on this. I won't in the sermon because I would like you to actually worship and engage with God and not have a 45-minute sort of seminar on how to do a discernment group, but I can give you resources on that if you want them. It's very simple, though. Have a question. Invite friends into it. Give them permission to ask anything. Be non-defensive. Pray together. With that said, I want to invite the worship team back up. What I want to do as we enter this song is just create a little space wherever you're at today. Whether you come in on the mountaintop or in the shadow of the valley of death. Wherever you are, somewhere in between, I just invite you in this space just to ask God what he might have to say to you. One of the great things about worship is in this moment, all you have to do is be present. And just say, God, what do you have for me? And in the song, we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to speak. So if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. Just invite you. Like we're not here because we love sitting in wooden pews or watching online. We're here because we want to hear the speaking voice of God. Holy Spirit, come speak to us. Jesus, you said that you would send us into the world and you would go with us and you would be with us always. Holy Spirit, speak to us. God, speak to us. We are broken, wounded creatures sitting on the peninsula or ever house or place we are watching, God, and we just say, speak, come, be the God that we worship. Reveal yourself to us. You are the comforter. You are the convictor. You are the one who calls us to repentance. Speak, God. Say the word we need to hear.